16, we're just going to do the last few verses and then into Acts 19. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this place, this time, this opportunity, just once again to gather together and to have your word opened and your spirit in us to teach us, to quicken us tonight. We thank you for the the unity of faith that we have in you and our fellowship together for our expectation as we look to you tonight. We ask you to bless and help us uh, in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we are just really about to start Paul's third missionary journey. And as we've gone through... uh, well, the book of Acts, but particularly the, the last uh, uh, few chapters, we've seen Paul's first missionary journey and second missionary journey now completed. So the first missionary journey was Acts 13 and 14. And remember, then there's the all-important Jerusalem Council, where there was the clarification of what the gospel really means. And then there was the second missionary journey from 16, 17, 18. Um, and that's what we just finished last week. We just finished... Uh, in 18 in Corinth, and now we're looking some time afterwards, you'll notice it says in 1823, after he had spent some time there, which was Antioch, remember he's always sent out from Antioch, returned to Antioch, and after he spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So similar to the second missionary journey with Barnabas, hey, let's go back over the churches, let's visit them, let's strengthen them, let's teach them, let's confirm elders, all all the rest of it. So you're going to see, though, the accounts now in, in the third missionary journey are a little bit more brief. There's sweeping statements that he went over the region of Galatia. We'd love to have more pages and details on that, but in this journey, we don't have it. It just says that he you know, covered, covered that region quite quickly. But just to pick up on that, the region of Galatia, um, yeah, no, we'll go back to it another time. So this is the third missionary journey. I'll, I'll put it up at the end. So again, starting at Antioch, and all of a sudden we read that statement, and after he goes over Phrygia and Galatia, so these are lots of these original cities that were planted on the first missionary journey, revisited on the second missionary journey. And we don't have much more that's said about that. The main commentary picks up when Paul hits Ephesus, which is most of this chapter, and of course, a very key um, city in the, in, the, in the chapter. When we think about Galatians, though, we know from the book of Galatians that there was real need for Paul to have this visit. We know that in the book of Galatians... One seven. there are some who trouble you, who want to pervert the gospel of Christ. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth in 5.7? The next verse, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever it is. So there were false teachers. Remember, they were called Judaizers. They would often be hot on Paul's trail from one city to the next and and he would plant a church and teach the people and then the Judaizers would come along and they want to add the law to it, which was what necessitated the Jerusalem Council in in, uh, chapter 15. So he goes over this region and um, and of course that's a a challenge, uh, a heartbreaker in a sense for Paul, for the apostle, 
or for any pastor, when you think about people who have been become believers, who have been taught, and then they slip into legalism or they get some teaching that's erroneous and they, they struggle or don't recover from that. And that was what Paul, of course, wanted to, to try and avoid if possible. So then he introduces a key character to us, and this is in, in verse 24 of we're in Acts 18. A certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, which is why the map's up there, who's an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, and he came to Ephesus. So this is actually before Paul gets to Ephesus. Paul is still in the Galatian area somewhere. And there's a little side story here coming in. Side story that this man, Apollos, came to Ephesus. You may remember that earlier in chapter 18, when Paul left Ephesus, he left someone there, remember? And it was Priscilla and Aquila those other disciples. So when Apollos came to Ephesus, God's providence would have it, is that's who he, he meets. In verse 25, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now we have to remember that the book of Acts is a, is a very transitional book. There's lots of transitioning in the book from Judaism to Christianity, from Jerusalem to Antioch, from Peter to Paul. There's lots of these transitions. And, of course, it takes years and years and years for many of those Christians who are coming out of Judaism to really acclimate, to adjust, to grasp the gospel, and to let go of some of the tenets of the law. They would hold on to some of those types of traditions. So we do meet certain people in the book of Acts that are kind of stuck in that transition. And Apollos was one of them. He'd heard the baptism of John, and he'd been instructed in the ways of the Lord, but he didn't know the baptism according to Acts 2 and what would happen when the, when the church began. So it's a wonderful thing that's said of him, though he was a mighty in the scriptures. So he was gifted, he was a wonderful speaker, but there was something deficient in his message. He, he had the first part, which, which John the Baptist introduced, but he didn't have the most important part, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. John, of course, was just a voice in the wilderness. He was a light that would shine for a little while. He was the, the friend of the groom, and he was pointing. I'm a voice. I'm pointing to the one who will come, and he's the one that you must believe in. I'm not the Christ. He's the Christ. And, of course, that was his message. By now, about 25 years have passed since Acts chapter 2, since Pentecost. Quite a long time has passed, and the church is growing in Jerusalem, and of course it's going into the uttermost parts of the world. Um, but this man, Apollos, speaking boldly, verse 26, speaking boldly in the synagogue in Ephesus. And when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So, again... Priscilla and Aquila have been left in Ephesus by Paul. Here's a wonderful divine appointment. They meet Apollos. They think, look at this guy. He's fervent. He's a great speaker. He's got amazing potential. He's on the right path, but he needs some help. He needs us to fill in the blanks and show him what the, the rest of the gospel is. Because you can't have half a gospel. It's not the gospel. So, um, and it's wonderful to see that, of course, he was intreatable to them. This man who was a mighty orator listen to these tent makers, Priscilla and Aquila, 
And, um, and of course, that's a key thing about being a teacher, is you also need to be a student. So, what they're able to do is help him, uh, they explain the gospel more clearly. So again, there would have been something that he understood, the baptism of John, and of course the baptism of John was, was speaking about repentance, which means an attitude of heart and mind that would change, recognizing sin, desiring to move forwards, but where were they to move to? There's no deliverance of sin through self-effort or the flesh. They were to move towards the one who would come. And that's where Apollos had fallen short until this point. So now we're going into Acts chapter 19. This is, um, we'll see, that's a little a side story of Apollos. And now we, we meet uh, Paul in 19.1. And in this chapter 19, remember, this is the... Paul stayed in Ephesus longer than any other place on any other missions journey. It's perhaps up to three years he was in Ephesus. It's the longest time. Remember, Corinth was about a year and a half or so. And and we get in this chapter, of course we don't get the full three-year story. We get glimpses. We get some main stories. The opening story is of 12, um, 12 men he's able to lead to the Lord. Then there is the Bible school he sets up in the school of Tyrannus. And then there are the sons of Sceva, that famous story of the, the, those who tried to cast out demons in Jesus' name. And then lastly, there's the riot because of the temple of Diana. So that's all crammed into this chapter. They're, they're windows into the history, major points that are brought out in the text. So um, this is the time that Paul's going to focus in Ephesus. You remember before... Um, the Holy Spirit had clearly said no when they wanted to go to this region. But now was the time. Now he was going to do an incredible work uh, with, by God's grace in Ephesus. So back in 8, 1820, they had asked him to stay a longer time, but he didn't consent. That's on the last mission trip on the way back. He stopped in Ephesus shortly, preached in the synagogues. And they said, will you stay longer? And he said no. But if it's God's will, 1821, I will return to you. And of course, now was the time. Now he did return. Now it was God's will, God's time. Uh, a groundwork had been laid by Priscilla and Aquila, and of course, Paul, Paul, some of Paul's visit before, even by Apollos now, who had become a key uh, minister. But now the Apostle Paul himself is going to arrive. And he arrives to Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila, so we see uh, Apollos is in, is in Ephesus. He's going to move over to Corinth. Paul is on the missionary journey. And after Apollos moves to Corinth, Paul arrives in Ephesus, which is where we are um, right now. You remember, the, the name Apollos might, might jog another memory for you. Do you remember where we read that verse? Paul, Paul planted, Apollos watered, right? God gives the increase from 1 Corinthians. So when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he recognized Apollos. He says, you know, I watered, I planted, and, and right after I left, Apollos came from Ephesus, he came to Corinth, and he watered what I had planted. So there's a real recognition that Apollos was a key man that God used, particularly in Corinth. So, where are we here? So he's in Ephesus now, Paul, fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, a very large, prosperous commercial port. It had a theater that seated, I can't remember what slides I've got, 
there's some ruins of Ephesus um, and ruins of the theater, which would have seated about 24,000 people or so. Ephesus was known for its spiritualism, use of magic, lots of idolatry surrounding the temple, sorcery. It's no accident in the book that it's in the book of Ephesians that Paul mentions things relating to spiritual warfare that we wrestle not against flesh and blood and the armor of the the Lord, etc. That's to the church in Ephesus, where in this city, where this church was planted, there was lots of sorcery, and we we read the sons of Sceva in this chapter, etc. So, um, there was the Greek temple of Diana, or Artemis. Uh, That's an artist's conception of what it might have been like. It was huge. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you go to the British Museum, they got parts of it in the British Museum today. It was a marvel. Um, and it was at 127 columns, all about 60 feet high, 425 feet long, a huge structure. And you can imagine that in, in the city, there were many people whose livelihood was kind of connected to this temple, just like the Jews in Jerusalem. Um, and and uh, we'll, we'll see how that plays into the chapter a little bit later. So, as we begin the chapter, is it here? No. As we begin the chapter, we look at these opening verses, and we'll see verse 2. Finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, I like to call this segment Paul and the Almost Christians. Now, this is one of those passages that, depending on what denomination of Christianity you're in, it might be explained a little bit differently. Sadly, this is a go-to chapter that's been used by the Pentecostals and Charismatics for years and years and years to try and explain what is called the second baptism or the baptism of the Spirit or the second blessing, whatever it might call, which implies or says that a Christian is saved by grace through faith But then at a certain point later in their life, they can and should and may receive a spiritual baptism or blessing. And they go to this segment to really say, well, look, they were were already disciples. It says there he met some disciples. And then he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit yet? And through his interaction with them, they do receive the Holy Spirit. So they, they say, look, they were Christians. They hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. And because Paul laid his hands on them, they received it. But it's really not, not it's, it's a real, uh, it's not clearly looking at the passage. So let's do that. So Paul meets these disciples, and first question is, well, disciples of who and disciples unto what is the question. Um, and so Paul asks them this question. He's, he's with them for a while, and something moves him to ask this question because he maybe thinks, wait a minute, I don't, are, they, are these guys Christians? I don't know. So he asks this very searching question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It's the same as saying, are you saved? Are you really Christians? Because you can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. The whole, the whole essence of Pentecost um, uh, testified to that. So, um, so Paul asks this question, the premise being Romans 8, 9. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So again, Pentecost happened 20, at least maybe 25 years before, and that was the whole, that was the birth of the church, the, found, the founding principle 
of what makes the church the church is that the church is now permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that's a significant, that's a qualifier. To be a Christian, it means you are now the vessel or the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit by then had come to the Jews in Acts 2, the Samaritans in Acts 8, the the, uh, Gentiles in Acts 10. But here was this little group kind of still stuck in transition, only having known the baptism of John, like Apollos, as we'll see in just a minute. And Paul connects with them. And, um, and let's see. So he says, what did they respond? Well, how, did they, well, how did they respond? They say, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So it's instantly clear to Paul, well, here's the first thing. They're not Christians. They haven't been saved. If they, if they are saying they haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit, they're not Christians. We could refer to them as almost Christians, because they have some tenets of the truth. They've heard John's baptism and John's message. And we could say that perhaps there are many people like this uh, in Christendom, even in Christian churches today, where they have some of the truth, but perhaps they don't have the most essential elements of the gospel, faith in in Christ alone, etc. So not so much as heard. So not only have they not received, but they say they haven't, even heard. Now, it's hard to believe that these first century Jewish men in Ephesus had never even heard of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, of course, is spoken of in the Old Testament. It's more likely what they mean by this is that in the, in terms of the, in terms of the, well, John the Baptist himself prophesied that the Holy Spirit will come. He said, I baptize you with water, but the one who comes after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So they would have understood John the Baptist's prophecy of the Holy Spirit, but probably their response is saying, we have no idea of that prophecy being fulfilled or what that means in any Christian term. So they say we have not as much heard. So this leads Paul to another question in verse 3. He said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So again, For a Christian today to look at this passage and say, well, clearly they were born-again Christians, they were part of the church, if they only knew John's baptism, you cannot say that. Because because the baptism of Acts 2, when 3,000 got saved, and Peter and the apostles are baptizing people, not John's baptism, but baptizing people in the name of Jesus. So... um, And what was John's baptism? Let's just echo that again. It was a baptism of repentance. And he said, to prepare people for the Lord. So these men, and there's about 12 of them, the text tells us, they had heard the the message of John where he's saying, I'm a voice preparing the way of the Lord. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord. Preparing yourself for him. They had heard that. They'd been baptized. They'd repented in their heart of their sins. It showed their desire to turn from their sins. But again, how would their sins be ultimately forgiven? Through the Lamb. When John the Baptist saw him, behold, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So somehow this small group had part one, but not part two. So Paul, obviously, gives them the missing key, verse four. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. And then he adds this important definition, that is, 
on Christ Jesus. In case you don't know who the Messiah actually is, I'll tell you two things. Number one, John himself said you should believe on the one who will come after the Messiah. And number two, by the way, that's Christ Jesus. And that was John's message to believe in here. And let me just finish off the job. Now you should believe in him. That's what he's saying. So John was only pointing forwards to Jesus. And now Jesus has... Um, he came, he was anointed, John the Baptist's baptism, he had his public ministry, he died on the cross, he rose again three days later, the Holy Spirit came 50 days later, the church began, and now you must believe in him as, you, as, as uh, the Messiah and for your forgiveness. And that's the key word he drops there. He drops the word believe. Okay, you've acknowledged John's baptism, there's been repentance in your heart, but you must Believe, And, of course, that's the key word that must connect to the gospel. In, in John's gospel alone, over a hundred times, that golden word believe is used. And, of course, this, was, this echoes Peter's message in Acts chapter 2. Remember that first famous message in, at Pentecost? Um, when the Holy Spirit descended, they began to speak in other known languages... And then it set the stage for Peter to give that incredible message. And at the end of it, they were struck to the heart and they said, what shall we do? And Peter said in Acts 2.38, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, repent is one of those words that we need to be careful with. Uh, Sadly, in many churches... That little word repent, metanoia in the Greek, which simply means to change your mind, is one of those words that has had a lot of things connected to it. To the point that some teachers today will say repent means you turn from your sin. You you turn and leave your sin, making that a prerequisite to salvation. In other words, you have to turn from your sin before you can get saved. That's not what it means. Particularly in that context, it means that that generation of Jews that had rejected Christ as the Messiah had to metanoia, change their mind on what they said about Jesus and to recognize that he was the Messiah that was crucified and now risen. So that's the first point. He tells them to repent. And of course it can acknowledge the fact that I'm a sinner, obviously. But it doesn't mean I stop being a sinner or I clean up my life before I come. It just means in my mind, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. I acknowledge the fact I need a Savior. And he says, let every one of you be baptized. And that same group, look at verse 41, then those who gladly received his word. So, yes, repent is recognized there, but also in this couple of verses later, they gladly received his word. And a couple of verses later, all those who believed were together and had all things in common. So there's repentance, receiving the word, and believing is the key thing, putting their faith in Christ. So, remember, John himself, John said, I am the voice crying in the wilderness. And in chapter 3, there's lots of things he says that I plucked out. One, he says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. So, what is Paul saying to this group of men? who are facing the right direction, but they just haven't made the the finishing steps. They've acknowledged John's message. They've acknowledged the need for repentance. They want to believe in the Messiah, 
but they haven't been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, only under John's baptism. So, um, this is what uh, Paul says to them. Now you must believe. And look at verse 5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why did he baptize them? Water baptism. Why did he baptize them? Obviously, because they believed, right? Um, They just needed to hear. And when they heard, they believed they were water baptized. But again, this time, it was the baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues. And again, glossa, this is languages. It's a known language. It's not an unknown angelic tongue. It's a, it's a known language. And they prophesied. And it echoes, of course, what happened in Acts 2 when all of those gathered for Pentecost spoke in known languages. And they asked the question, how is it that everyone here, that I hear them in my own language? So this is what was happening here. And the reason, of course, was for these men, for it to become very clear and validated that now, through believing in Jesus Christ, they had received the Holy Spirit and been baptized into the body of Christ. When he laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon these men. Now, laying on of hands, does that mean... We have to, it's one of those things, again, you have to be a bit careful. You can take certain things in the book of Acts and think, well, this must be the model and the pattern that we must do every time, otherwise it's not going to work like some kind of formula. But if you note, in Acts 2, there was no laying on of hands. Uh, Peter was preaching. There was no laying on of hands. And the Holy Spirit, when they believed, the Holy Spirit descended upon them and they spoke in languages. In Acts 8... Peter did lay on hands, and they did receive the Spirit, but there there is no languages mentioned. In Acts 10, with Cornelius and the Gentiles, as Peter spoke, he was in the middle of his message, the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles. There was no laying on of hands again, but there was the speaking of languages. So you can see, sometimes laying on of hands, sometimes languages, sometimes not. It's, It's different. So it's dangerous to take it and... I think it always must be a formula each time. Galatians 3.2 simply says, they received the Spirit by the hearing of faith. He doesn't say by the laying on of hands, but just by the hearing of faith. And this served as a very powerful sign for this group. They were now certainly Christians baptized into the body, um, and, uh, and uh, they could, I'm sure, sense Uh, that this was a brand new starting point. This is what John the Baptist had been uh, pointing to. Now, so again, there's a couple of transitional characters. Apollos had only heard of the baptism of John, and now these men in Ephesus also only heard the baptism of John. Both these groups, examples of being uh, led specifically to the faith, one by Priscilla and Aquila, and the other by Paul himself with these men here. And they they would have been a core group uh, uh, that would help with the foundation and the growth of the church in Ephesus. So, um, verse 8. So that kind of leaves that story now, and it says, um, and we're going to see, he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months. Now again, Paul is going to be there for, for about three years in Ephesus. 
An incredible work is going to take place in Ephesus. Um, When Paul writes to Corinth, he does so from Ephesus. And if you had the map, remember Corinth in the in the east, and, and Ephesus would have been to the west. So, so when he when he was in Ephesus, he wrote, writes his letters to Corinth, both letters. And from there, First Corinthians sixteen nine, he says, "I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, but there are many adversaries." So notice that we're, we're, it's so wonderful to know the context. When Paul writes that, he's in Ephesus. And he writes to the Corinthians, he says, a great door has been opened to me. And that's where he was. And this is what we're going to read about now. But there are many adversaries. Great door, many adversaries. He goes into the synagogue, as was his pattern. As wherever there was a synagogue, he would start there because there were God-seekers, God-fearers, the the Jews and the Gentile God-fearers who were gathered there. And he had uh, an opportunity and an audience there. And it says he would... Uh, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Now, you may remember that was a theme of Jesus in Acts 1.1 and Acts 1.2. After the resurrection, for those 40 days before the ascension, Jesus was teaching concerning the kingdom of God. And right after that, his own disciples (laughs) said to him, after the 40 days, will the kingdom come now, Lord? which clearly tells us he wasn't teaching that the kingdom's cancelled now. The kingdom was clearly fully in place, but there was yet to be an interruption, the church age. All of the Old Testament prophets is looking forward to the king and the kingdom and the glory and the righteousness. They will certainly be fulfilled, but now um, there is a, a different segment inserted into the program, of course, which God all, all, always knew about. So, it says here, Paul was persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. And specifically, we could imagine what he would have been explaining was that, yes, the Messiah King, who was anticipated to be someone like King David, who would set them free from the oppression of the Roman Empire, etc., the the Messiah King will come, yes, but guess what? He's already come. And he was rejected and he was crucified, but he rose again. And now he's doing a work. He said when he was here, I will build my church. But the good news is he will come again. And when he comes again, he will not come as the lamb to die, but come as the king to reign. So that would have been the type of thing we could imagine Paul was explaining here, but we don't have that uh, given to us. Verse 9, And when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, So three months he was in the synagogue, no short time, faithfully teaching, debating, having long conversations, and the response was, some were hardened and did not believe. But they didn't stop there, they began to speak evil of the way. Um, Sadly, that can often be the result. If someone, maybe because of guilt or conviction, they, they know what you're saying is true, and to help themselves or justify it, they will often attack the messenger. This was the case here. So what was Paul's response to that? People are beginning to speak evil of him and evil of the message. What would you do? Would you fight it? Would you want to set them straight? Would you want to defend yourself? Well, it tells us he departed from them and withdrew the disciples. 
reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So Paul at this point was led, okay, I've been here three months, I've been teaching, I've laid it out as clear as I know, and if, if you're going to respond that way and you're going to talk evil about us, I'm just going to withdraw, I'm going to take these key disciples that want to come with me. And he went to a lecture hall or a school of one called Tyrannius, was able to use that for two years. It says he taught daily for two years in Ephesus. You can imagine the incredible foundation that would have laid in the lives of people and the lives of the church in Ephesus there. So, verse 10 tells us, This continued two years, and that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So this is speaking of Asia Minor, where many of his missionary journeys took place, where it says Asia there. All who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Wow. What an incredible, fruitful time. Two amazing years. Perhaps um, perhaps it was that, that many came from other churches to Ephesus to go to Bible school for those two years. We don't know. But certainly people were trained up and, and, then, and then they went out and they were teaching and preaching. And it says, notice it says, they heard the word of the Lord. And that was the focus. It wasn't like, oh, have you heard about the Apostle Paul? You want to come and hear Paul? It wasn't about Paul. It was, it was about the message. It was about the gospel. And we'll read later in this chapter, verse 20. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. We'd love to read those words about Sussex or our local counties or our country. All hearing the word of the Lord, the effect of that, the changed lives that took place in that. Now verse 11 says, Now God worked unusual miracles uh, by the hands of Paul. It doesn't just say, God worked miracles by the hands of Paul. It inserts the word unusual. So even in the scope of miracles, these ones are noted to be unusual. God worked these miracles, particularly in the context of the spiritual warfare and demonic strongholds and activity in the city of Ephesus. Notice it says that God worked the miracles, not Paul. Paul was not a miracle worker. Although the apostles themselves did have um, some of those gifts, certainly worked among the apostles. In fact, this verse clearly says, written by Paul himself, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. I'm personally of the persuasion that those overt outward gifts, particularly of miracles and healing, were what Paul's referring to here, signs of an apostle. During the apostolic age, these apostles were specifically and specially gifted with the ability to perform miracles and for people to be healed um, so that as messengers and the message itself would be validated. It's not my phone. I don't know whose that is. Um, Now, you say, what do you mean? Do you not believe in miracles? No, absolutely we believe in miracles and we believe in healing. We don't, we just don't, I say I, don't believe that any one particular person possesses the gift of healing or possesses the gift of miracles. If that was the case, 
the people that had that would be a lot more famous than they are now. Because every time they would pray for someone, that person would get healed and there would be miracles. But we don't see that happening. So certainly we, it can't, can't be conclusive that that's the case. But here's some of the miracles that were taking place. Verse 12. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from Paul's body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. So through these unusual miracles, God demonstrates power over disease, over demon possession, and as we'll see, over sorcerers. Now this is one of those verses, it's a little strange when you read it. You mean, wait a minute, you mean that there were bits of cloth that they brought from Paul, they brought it to the person that was sick, and somehow that person was healed, that's what it says. So, the wisest attitude for us to have when we read that is not the attitude of a skeptic, also not the attitude of a mimic, thinking this is something that we must try and imitate, but from the attitude of a Bible student and considering the context and the early church and what God was doing, why this was a key time. Why would God perform unusual miracles through Paul in Ephesus at this time? Um, Sadly, we see this type of verse and this type of thing practiced and exploited through TV evangelists. Well, I don't see it because I refuse to watch that kind of stuff. But it's possible to see that stuff. It's, uh, it's very sad that people are exploited and fooled and conned. It always involves money. We don't read about money in this verse, do we, with Paul? But it's always about money, and it's, it's, uh, it's very, very sad. So we don't, we don't go for that kind of stuff. So if anyone says, oh, this, this, was, this is Graham's hanky, you just say, no thanks, not interested. Okay, and this sets the stage for the famous story of the sons of Sceva, or Siva. It depends on how you, if the C is, uh, how, how you want to pronounce it. But, so these sons, um, verse 13, and some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. So these were men who um, were, would commonly practice this. Perhaps there was money involved. Perhaps there was some gain, but either way there was fame and, you know, through it. And often with exorcism, the idea was if you could get a name that was greater than the the demon that is involved, then you could cast them out. So they will look at, look at the effect of the name of Jesus that Paul is preaching about. Look, about. look at these people who are getting healed. So he says to his sons, hey guys, I've got a new name to try out. Try this one out, Jesus, the Paul preaches. So this is what they do. Verse 14 introduces them to us. There were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest. And by the way, there's no historical record of that name, of which we have many. Unless he slipped through the net, it's probably a self-appointed title to give him some uh, some authority or whatever. But anyway, um, and his seven sons try out Jesus' name on a demon-possessed man. Verse 15, and the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know. I thought I had that up there. No, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? 
Now, it's quite an insightful verse, isn't it, when you think about it, when it's a little, a little insightful into demonic activity and reality, that these demons made the confession that, oh, we know Jesus, and we know Paul, but who are you? It's like back in Acts 16 in Philippi, remember when Paul and uh, Silas, was it? Paul and Silas were walking through the streets and there's a demon-possessed girl who's following them, remember? And she says, oh, these men are of the Most High God. And finally, after several days, Paul turns around, has enough, and he casts the demon out of her and that's why they get thrown in jail, etc. Um, but it's interesting that the demon there, through the girl, was able to say, these are servants of the Most High God. Well, how did they know that? Unless there's some understanding in the, in the spiritual realm. And as it was here, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but you we don't know. Who are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So the seven sons of Sceva became the seven streakers of Sceva, (laughs) running down the street, completely humiliated, uh, you know, beaten up, and uh, definitely was, didn't end up how they thought it was going to. But here's the key to this. And as is often the case in the book of Acts, through miracles and preaching or a certain event, Ananias and Sapphira, etc., that, that, you've got to say, well, what was God doing through this situation? And we see what was happening in verse 17. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So this was the this was the point. God setting the stage, using these elements, these people, this situation, and here's the conclusion: a healthy fear in Ephesus, recognizing that there is authority in the name of Jesus, that Paul certainly is validated as a messenger. He certainly does deserve our attention. That type of thing was happening. The name of the Lord Jesus was magnified there. And what was the result of that? Verse 18, And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And notice, many who had believed, these are believers. These are people who had put their faith in the message, in Christ. But now, after seeing this incredible um, manifestation or, or, or What's the word? Authentifying of who Paul was and what the message was. These people who believed there were certain things in their life, certain baggage and things that they had from living in Ephesus and idolatry and spiritualism and all the rest of it. They suddenly saw the kingdom conflict and said, you know what? I'm going to confess. I'm going to bring these things that are in my life and I'm going to get rid of it. So this is what they did. Verse 19. And also many of those who have practiced magic brought their books or their scrolls and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. This is a drachma. One drachma was one day's wage. An immense amount of money in this huge city, this wave of, of uh, fear and reverence and conviction and conversion. 
and deliverance, we could say. It was all taking place in this city. They brought their spell books, their scrolls, their magical formulas, anything related to their sorcery, whatever, and they said, let's have a bonfire. Now, sometimes that may happen in our lives. Maybe we've been a Christian for a long time and you suddenly realize this area of my life is something, you know what, it's God's timing. There's no condemnation. I need to have a little bonfire here. And get rid of this because I don't want this associated with my life anymore. And no one writes the prescription. That's something that God is so personal at doing that. I remember I could give illustrations from my own life, but I hesitate, I hesitate to do that because people say, oh, it means I've got to do that. It's different for everyone, whether it's to do with music or whatever it was, whatever. God may, God may lead you gently in your own way, but when he does, uh, we want to respond. There's a further statement of victory in verse 20. So again, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And then there's an important note here in the book, verse 21. And we suddenly hear the word Rome. And what, from this point on, in Paul's heart, he has the goal of finally ending up in that major capital city of Rome. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in his spirit, and when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So, I don't know, do I have a map here? So, he's in Ephesus, and he he now says, once I've passed through Macedonia and Achaia, I'm going to head back to Jerusalem, and then I'm going to head to Rome. So why, why, after just coming from here, why does he want to go back through this region? If you follow the arrow, he wants to go back across here, and then he wants to come back to Jerusalem. We remember that Jerusalem was a poor church. We remember that in the epistles, there were many times that Paul makes reference to taking, making uh, an offering or taking a gift from one church for the saints in Jerusalem. It appears that the church in Jerusalem particularly was always a poor church, and Paul always had it on his heart to try and support them. So it seems, although it's not explicitly said, it seems that the reason would have been to get some gathering, to go to Jerusalem that last time he feels I finished that mission, and now I'm going to go to Rome. So, verse 22, So he sent into Macedonia two of those who had ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So this introduces the last stage. We've looked at Paul's first missionary journey, his second missionary journey, his third missionary journey, and now the last segment we could say it's often called Paul's journey to Rome. And really, the final chapters from here to the end of the book follow that journey, and there's lots of wonderful um, encounters, and he meets with the elders of, of Ephesus in the next chapter, etc., etc., but he ends up in, in Rome. Um, and, of course, Rome, he, maybe he doesn't end up in Rome how he imagined. Of course, we know he ends up there in the prison. God uses that. He writes the prison epistles, etc., but that's where he ends up um, But for now, Paul remains in Ephesus. So let's go back here, verse 23. About that time, is it here? Yeah. About that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. And of course, the way was a term that was put on Christians almost in a a 
a cynical sense that they were a sect or a cult called the way because Jesus said, I am the way. So often Christians are called that. So great commotion about the way. For a certain man, introduces another character here, Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. So again, we go back to the Temple of Diana. Remember, we mentioned it in the beginning. Now it comes center stage because how this chapter is going to end with this massive riot, and it, and it kind of centers around Demetrius and the other craftsmen and what the temple meant in the city. Because what these craftsmen would do is they would make little models, either of the temple or of Diana, or Artemis is, is another term related to this temple, and people would take it into the temple on their pilgrimage, they would get it blessed, and then they would take it to their home. Um, not unlike when you go to the Colosseum, you can get a little model of it and everything. But this was different. This was idolatry. They, they believed that there's a blessing here. And pilgrims from all over the world would come to Ephesus, and this is something that they would do. But something had changed. And Demetrius, the silversmith, for one, was noticing it. And he said to the other craftsmen, hey, have you noticed that our takings are going down? And you know why? It's this guy Paul. Look what he says. Verse 25, men, you know that we have great prosperity by this trade. Hey, you guys know we're doing okay, aren't we? Boy, we, we got it good. We're just making these little models. We're making a fortune. We're living really well. But you see in here that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people. We would say praise the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. Paul would love to... To, to hear that written about said about him, saying that there are not gods which are made with hands, and that was their livelihood, making these little idols, making gods with hands. And this, and, and he says, verse uh, twenty-seven. Not only is this trade of ours in danger, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised, and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So guys, our trade, we're gonna, our, our livelihood, our trade, our prosperity. Oh yeah, and of course, and the temple and Diana, but our trade. When he says that, verse 28, they were all full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And you, you, they wanted to say that as loud as they could. So the whole city, look at this, what a jump from 28 to 29. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. So all of a sudden, and you can't help imagine there must be some kind of demonic energy involved in this, Demetrius starts to complain. He tells the craftsman, great is Diana. Before you know it, it's whipped into this frenzy. Everyone is, um, uh, you know, going crazy, running around. They grab two of Paul's companions. They run him into the, uh, into the theater. And Paul wanted to go to the people, verse 30. The disciples would not let him. And some of the officials of Asia who were his friends, that's an interesting note, some of Paul's friends who were officials, sent to him pleading he would not venture into the theater. 
Some therefore, and Luke makes this note, some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them (laughs) did not know why they had come together. It's perhaps not like some rallies we might meet today, if we could interview them. Yes, why are you here today? Uh, uh, You know, that was the case here. Some of them didn't even know why. I don't know, but where are we going? I don't know. It's going crazy. Mass hysteria. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude and the Jews putting him forward. So all of a sudden, this poor guy, yeah, what's happening? You go up there. What? What? You go up This guy, Alexander, is pushed to the front and he's standing before this crowd. He tries to get them quiet. He wants to say something. Verse 34, but before he could say anything, when they found out he was a Jew, they all cried out for two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Two hours, nonstop. This crowd in absolute hysteria just shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And then these last verses here show a cool, calm, collected city clerk. He steps up there and he dishes out some simple reason and manages to quiet the crowd. He says, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple guardian to the great goddess of Diana and the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who have neither robbers of the temples or blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. (laughs) So it went from this hysterical rage, the clerk gets up, and then he says, okay, and that's it, we're dismissed, you can go. And everyone's standing there like, okay. And they go. You can't help think that perhaps there was some prayer involved there with the disciples praying that God would move. And this clerk perhaps was used in the answer to that prayer. And we'll finish with the first verse of the next chapter, which simply says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. And that really ends the third missionary journey. And of course, he did visit several places um, on the route through Galatia, through Phrygia, but the main focus being in Ephesus. But now Paul's looking to the horizon. He's looking to get to Rome. And we'll pick up that journey uh, when we come up back together.